Charlie rapidly sat down with Jeff Calhoun, Scott Schwartz, Larry Fuller, and others for a panel entitled It's Not Where You Start in the SDCF Produce Symposium of 2002. The following program is a recording of the conversation that took place. Hello, I'm SDC Director Choreographer Edie Cowan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. I am going to introduce a, a director, a, an actor, uh, now a teacher, and a very good friend of the foundations, uh, who will introduce our very distinguished panel, all of whom delight us the fact that you're here. I mean, looking at who's sitting on this stage right now, to me is a Broadway musical theater from the past to the immediate present. Directors and choreographers, great, every single one of them. So I will introduce you to our moderator for the session, Mr. Charlie Reppley. On this stage. So let me just say their names, and then we should just start talking, I think, because we have about an hour. Pat Birch, Jeff Calhoun, Susan L. Schulman, David Warren, Scott Schwartz, is it right? Yeah. Larry Fuller, Lynn Taylor Corbett, and Dave Barrett. Oh, Gabriel Barrett. Uh, so, our little task tonight, I think, is to say, how do we get involved in the musical theater? How did it first start? Where were turning points? Why, and Susan, I, I'd like to start with you. Oh, I know, because I want to surprise you over there. Because I know that you, you, you thought this was very important, as Joe was talking about, how important it was. Well, where did we start? Why did we start? Where was it that we started? Why don't we just start? Um, well, for me, the first time I heard an overture uh, was what started me on the past musical theater. I heard the overture start, and I went, well, why would I want to do anything else? I mean, it was so exciting to hear that music and, and for that to be the start of the theatrical event. Um, and so I said, well, I'm going to do that. And I'm, I'm a New Yorker, so I was hearing it in, in New York. I was hearing it in Broadway. I was taken for my birthday to see The Music Man and West Side Story on the same day. Said, 
with Susan. I haven't seen anything you've done. And I went, yes, but if you don't give me a chance, I'll let you do anything. And just went on and on and on and on. And finally, he said, okay, okay. Have you ever heard of a show called Carnival? I went, uh, yeah, sure. I did, I did. What we're going to do? Okay, I can do that. And um, I got my friends together, and I got an artistic team together, and I did the show at Equity Library Theater for $500, and they gave us tokens. That was, our, <laughs> that was what we got paid for. And I continued to do that. I continued to take that opportunity to do as many shows as I could for no money that interested me and got me excited. And it's a very interesting fact, the only time I ever made any money in New York was my first Broadway show. All the shows I did before, I got paid in tokens, or I got paid, you know, lunch money, or that kind of thing. And and I used to work out of town. I used to work at uh, lots of stock theaters. I worked at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera for many, many years to pay for this indulgence of doing uh, musicals in New York at small, little, out of the way theaters. And um, one thing just led to another. I, one day I was. Um, at Equity Library Theater had done a, a production of Little Mind Music, and it was the final performance, and someone said to me, a friend of mine said, you know, a man who looks just like Stephen Sondheim is coming down the street. <laughs> you know? And of course I turned around and went, oh my God. And I thought, well, this is it. I'm not going to live. I'm, you know, this will be the end of my career. Well, you know, he saw the show, and he came up to me afterwards, and he said, that was swell. <laughs> I mean, he could have said a lot worse things than that, but he did say it was swell, and you know, you connect the dots, and then I knew the company, and then, you know, la la la, and then the next thing, you know, I was doing a small production of Sweeney Todd, and you had to have, at that time, he still did doing a production, a Sondheim production, you want the, the writers have the ability to say yay or nay to the director, and um, uh, Sondheim's agent at the time was Flora Robbins, and she said, who is this girl? Never heard of this girl. And he said, oh, I know who she is. She did a really good production of my music at ELT. And then they helped me do Sweet Todd, and then gave me my first part of the show. So, I mean, the, the, I think the most important thing I really have to say is that you need to keep working. You need to keep doing things. As Al said, you never know who's going to show up. You never know who's don't do anything. You keep waiting for someone to give you something. You're not going to. You're not. First of all, you're not going to get any experience, and you're not going to. Your work's not going to be seen. I mean, do a show in a in a room somewhere, in a loft somewhere. Tell people you're doing it. Invite people. I've gone to so many shows in small, tiny little theaters. I go all the time. I go anytime somebody invites me. I can. I really do. And they say, look, I'm doing a brand new show, I'm doing a brand new musical, this is what it's about. I say, oh, this sounds interesting. I'll show up. So I think the important thing is just to do it, to really just get out there, get your friends together, and do something you believe in. Why don't you maybe just go down the block to let Isabel Stevenson? <laughs> 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 I never thought that could be before. Like well, Isabel Stevenson. Isabel Stevenson. <laughs> so what? I think she Where did you? Where did you? What made you get into musicals? What? What was the? What was your first job in a musical? A paid job? You mean a paid job in New York? 
in, in, anywhere doing the music? Um, I was actually in high school. Really? Yes. And I wrote away with Summer Stock Company and asked if I could be a star. <laughs> and, uh, I would also paint a little and I wanted to get please come be a star in, in the little ingenuity roles. And the fact that I could barely sing how much, uh, I already danced a lot. I got a backtrack because my background was a little bit different. I uh, was um, louder. Uh, I, I was I was uh, at the grand school and in the grand company before I really switched over to musical. So it was a slightly different route. Although I was always wanting to do it, and I was always doing musicals on the side while I was with the grand company, which I did from the time I was about sixteen. Um, uh, so I did my little summer stop jobs, and I choreographed a little bit. On the other hand, uh, I loved being in the company. I left to do West Side Story, and I also left because I had kids very, very early, which is quite different than nowadays. I was 20 with a child already, and I had to stay home from tour. And I wrote Agnes DeMille a letter, and could I please uh, be in one of her revivals? Yes, I could do that. So I, I was juggling everything. Graham coming home, me with a baby, um, Agnes Camille, you name it. Guess what? You can do it all. If you can learn to live with chaos. Um, anyhow, the, uh, the turning point came when uh, I was asked to do Westside after I'd already done it by Arthur Whitelaw, no less. They were doing three shows. If I did anybody's in Westside out in this place in New Jersey, they'd let me do Irma La Duke's squad. What could be better? They don't know that I can't sing. I'll just do it. You just find I'll be a star in New Jersey and the Gladiators Arena for this. <laughs> Guess what? Gladiators Arena closed <coughs> before we ever got to Irma. Arthur Colton said he was doing Charlie Brown. Would I play Patty? I said, no, 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 no. I play Lucy. <laughs> Uh, in fact, that I was not right for it, could not sing, none of that mattered to me. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'm going to help Joe Hardy out because he needs help with the stage. He already said so on the musical numbers, if I can understudy Lucy. Deal. I understudy Lucy. I went on. I sang two shows, lost the voice, and whispered the next two. Um, but the, the main thing was that I found out that I enjoyed uh, choreographing, staging as much as I did performing. Um, and the rest kind of followed suit. Arthur then asked. The biggest break for me came when I got fired. Um, with the show that Arthur was doing, I got fired off it and I got a call. I was just starting out, real early, to do the Me Nobody Knows, which may be one of my favorite experiences in this world. Um, for those of you who don't know what the show was, it was the writings of Ghetto Kids. Reese came out of that, and Hal saw Reese and asked me to do night music. And I said, well, what? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't get it, Hal. What do I do? And, I mean, he knew my background, he knew the whole thing. And he told Mrs. Westside, because he ran a foot-in rehearsal for me. Um, as if he directed the put-in rehearsal, and Jerry was curious when he found out about it. <laughs> so we knew each other a little, and um, 
he said, I know your background, and I think you have more fun on stage than anybody I know, which I hope is true. And uh, we went on from there and broke up for a while while I went up to do movies and got back together again and had a great relationship. And I had a good time going back and forth between all media. And my advice to you is, yeah, just the same as Susan says, find a storefront, find somewhere. Um, I was lucky only because I wrote Summer Stock people said, please let me be a star. And they said, well, we need someone to save something. That's as much as I know. <laughs> yeah? I think what's becoming evident and the coolest thing for you guys to hear is that there isn't one way to do this. Clearly, it's just a question that there's nothing else that you want to do in life, and so you do it. For each one of us, there's going to be a completely different story as there would be for you, and that's, I think, the good news and the confidence builder. Uh, my particular journey was uh, through dancing. I lived in Pittsburgh and uh, watched Kill Burnett show on television. I said to my parents, I want to do that. My dad said, no, you don't. I said, yes, I <laughs> So I was also a football player. And so Wednesdays, I'd leave football practice early and go to tap dancing class. But anyway, it was a very long walk off the football field. But anyway, I had a dance teacher in Pittsburgh who happened to be a choreographer and a summerstock uh, company called the Kenley Players in Ohio. And uh, it was a great experience. I was 16 years old and had an opportunity to get my equity card. And my first job was dancing with Ann Miller in a show called uh, Anything Goes. So I was a, a tap dancer. And uh, that's where I met a gentleman named Tommy Toon. And for me, it was Tommy basically taking me under his wing and for the next 21 years was uh, next to my mother and father, the most influential person in my life. And I clearly would not be here without him. And just the quick jumping off points were Summerstock, meeting Tommy. Uh, actually, I was his understudy, but only because I was like the tallest person on stage and could be the closest to fitting into his costume. That's how it works back then. Um, and then I went away to college. Only one year, Tommy asked me then to go do a show called The Best Little Horror House in Texas, the tour of it. And so after a big meeting with my parents and Tommy, <laughs> they agreed I could go do that show as long as when it was over, I promised to go back to Northwestern. And so they let me do it. The tour took me from New York to Los Angeles. By this point, I was now 19. And of course, I, I, mean, I still haven't gone back to Northwestern yet. <laughs> But I feel like I have been in school the whole time. And actually, the older you get, the more you realize that's a good mentality. Um, anyway, so that took me to LA where I became an actor and then realized I was not a very good actor and that I really wanted to direct. And choreography seemed like a logical step into that. And uh, I was in New York doing shows uh, as an actor in the chorus. And then. Uh, Oh, I did a job called, uh, when Tommy did a show called My One and Only with Twiggy, uh, he had to leave to put together the tour of Nine, another Broadway show, and so I replaced him for two weeks. I got to marry Twiggy every night at the St. James Theater for two weeks, which was really a thrill for someone in their early 20s. And I think I'm really smart at knowing my shortcomings as well as what my strengths are. And I think I knew in the, uh, I think how Prince actually, I quote him, I, I don't know if he said this, but I think he said this. 
I think I read in his book a long time ago that the great source of, of wisdom a man has are the secret confessions he makes in his heart. And at the end of that two weeks, someplace in there I went, you know, chances are this is never going to happen again in your life. Will you take the final bow on a Broadway stage? And so I went, you know what, I'm going to close this door with great satisfaction. And I closed the door on performing, and I moved to LA and said, I want to learn to direct and choreograph, because who's going to let you do that in New York if you have no credits? And this weird freakish thing in nature happened, this disease, AIDS, came along, and it turned out that there were lots of, I actually did, I'm very proud of the first uh, benefit for AIDS uh, in, in Los Angeles. Michael Bennett had just passed away, and uh, anyway, someone asked me to put together this thing. And looking back, it's a weird conundrum, but I got a lot of experience directing and choreographing benefits uh, because of uh, the necessity to do such. And, um, and that led to doing dinner theater in California. Basically, any job someone would let me direct, and of course it was revivals. That, you know, you think you're a director, but because it says directed by, but what you're really doing is taking what you knew to be true and adapting it to theater and on a new cast. But you're still getting your legs as a director choreographer. Meanwhile, the whole time, Tommy Toon would fly to LA and see everything I did. After six years of that, he said, I think you're ready to come to New York. I'm doing a show called The Will Rogers Follies. Uh, would you be my uh, associate choreographer? And I said, I'd love to. We didn't know what it was going to be as successful as it was. And I think that was, well, I know it was. That was my audition for the big time. And luckily, the choreography, uh, he was pleased with it. And uh, that led then to being a Broadway uh, choreographer. And then someone, the Weissers, asked Tommy to direct a revival of Greece. You always sit next to each other, and I feel so silly talking about Greece because he created it. I got to move. But anyway, um, but uh, anyway, they asked Tommy to direct Greece, and Tommy at that point, you know, was at the top of his career, and he was. Uh, I can't direct Greece. I don't know why he just said he couldn't direct Greece. He goes, but let I have this kid who's ready. Let him do it. And that was me, and that was my debut as a director, and it was obviously a great experience. But that led from, you know, Pittsburgh dancing class, to summer stock, to the course of a Broadway show, to L.A., to New York. And I guess the best way to, for me to finish and to move on is to say, and now here I am, and I have this material that I've developed as a director choreographer, but yet I can't find anyone who wants to give me the money to produce it. <laughs> so I just last week became officially a producer for the first time, and a friend and I have sold our stocks, done this, and we are we are producing our own material. David? I was trying to decide how honest to be about this. <laughs> Because I actually, when I was starting out as a director, I had no interest in musical theater. And I actually don't think, I thought I didn't even like it. And I wanted to direct classical plays and uh, premieres. And I was working at the La Jolla. Get him out of here. How did he get in here? <laughs> and uh, I, was um, I was working at the La Jolla Playhouse as a set design assistant when I first got out of college. Because I had this very pretentious idea that I would be a director designer, um, which I had no interest in doing. In fact, I love British tradition. Exactly. Um, but uh, anyway, I was working, and basically on the last 
day of the summer, I sort of got a full encouragement. I went up to Des Mackina, who was the artistic director, who was at that time directing Big River. And I said, I really don't want to be a set designer. I want to be a director. Could I assist you? And I thought he would, you know, call me and ask me to assist him on, you know, he was about to get ready with the Seagull. But he called two weeks later when I was back in New York, and he said, uh, we're going to open our season with a revival of Merrily We Roll Along. And James Lapine is going to be revising it. And then Taylor Corbett was the choreographer. And uh, would you be interested in interviewing with James Lapine to work on the show? And I thought, oh, that sounds exciting. So I met James, and the first thing that he said is that he initially had no interest in musical theater, and he started out as a graphic designer. And so the fact that I kind of was ill-suited to the job made me sort of ideally suited to the job <laughs> in that case. And I really sort of went through this transformation in that process because I sort of bounced back and forth. I worked with James on that show and then on Into the Woods and um, the original Into the Woods. In fact, the original. How old was that now? 1986? Yeah. Uh, I, I did that and I did uh, musical, another musical with Des that sort of died out of town. And so I learned about musical theater. That was, I, sort of, I always say I went to the Des Magna James Lapine School of Musical Theater. I just, I just sat in a room and watched, and I got to, you know, watch Stephen Sondheim come in and sing No One's Alone the day after he wrote it. And, and it, I was just transformed, and I, and I realized that there is something kind of sacred that can happen when you get a bunch of people in a room and they tell a story through music. Um, so I kind of learned about musicals, and then I came to New York and I started directing plays, and no one would hire me to direct musicals. Um, so sort of in the back, you know, kind of like, I'm stuck, it's like a back burner. I hope I can get back to that because I know that I love it. And I was doing a play by Albert Morado at Playwrights Horizons. I guess it was about 1987. And Bill Finn came to see it. And uh, and I had, you know, I, I certainly I loved Roger Falsetta so much. He's kind of a hero. And he came backstage and he said, are you David Warren? And I said, yeah. And he said, I want you to direct my new show. I love this. You're a great director. And so and that, the next day, Joseph Pack called and said, you know, can you come in and meet me? And because Milton wants you to direct this show. So I guess I guess what I was trying to, the point I was trying to make, because I think it is a pattern, there are these weird dots. And you can't really, until you get past them, go back and connect them. But, you know, I learned about musicals, and then no one would hire me to do them. And so I did the thing that I that I was sort of more apparently suited to do, which is direct plays. And I directed plays, and then Bill Finn came and said, "This is someone who should direct my musical." And uh, I couldn't have planned it, and I couldn't have said, "Oh, if I do that play, certainly that will lead to something else." And, but it did. And uh, I guess uh, the last point that I would make is for those of you who are interested in both, I think directing plays and directing musicals. Uh, if you go sort of back and forth, it's it's like what I call crop rotation. You know how like farmers don't grow the same crop in a plot of land the same every year because it, it depletes certain nutrients. I think there's something very exciting about going back and forth. And I think I think I'm better at musicals when I've just done you know Shakespeare play, and way better at Shakespeare because I've worked on musicals. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> Scott. Um, well, actually, I just want to, first of all, second what he just said. I, I absolutely adore going back and forth between projects. And, 
you know, after doing uh, some of my recent musicals, I basically said, I just want to do plays for a while. And it's just been incredibly invigorating. So I think that that's a really great insight. Um, I don't know. It, it feels like, gee, how, how long can I be without being boring, I suppose, and how, gee, where I came from. Um, I, I guess my background, uh, I came from a theatrical family. So I suppose I had a bit of a leg up from the get-go in terms of just how I was exposed to this my whole life, uh, and to musicals my whole life. I loved them. Uh, I learned very, very early on uh, that I both didn't want to be an actor and wasn't really any good as an actor. So I, I kind of discovered uh, all the way back in high school that I really liked being on the other side. And as many of you obviously have too, you know, being able to see the whole picture. Uh, and I went to Harvard, uh, and the very first semester, I auditioned for seven shows to, to act in, because they have this thing called common casting, where all the shows in the semester audition. I didn't get any of them. Uh, but that was actually the nail in the coffin. <laughs> but then I actually they didn't have to drop a house on you. They didn't have to do that. Uh, but then I, I went on to direct seven shows while I was at Harvard. And I have to say that that was the, the best possible training I could have gotten. I, I really believe there's a great deal to be learned from uh, observing and working with people. Absolutely. Um, every time, uh, certainly when I co directed with John Caird, I lived in an enormous amount. Uh, and just being around people and watching people, you know, I didn't agree with how, you know, you learn so much. But there is something about just doing it. Uh, and, and again, I also echo what, what Susan said, where you just learn so much more by making mistakes and saying, oh, gee, that didn't actually work. Or that way of speaking to an actor doesn't, doesn't work. Let's <laughs> <laughs> be honest. You know, or, or also, uh, that thing did work. You know, or I like that. Um, but I guess what really happened for me, I got some very good advice, uh, which I've now taken to sharing a little bit, because it really helped, which was very, right early on, and I should credit, it was from Richard Malkin, and he, he told me this advice. He said, you should just get out there and just do things and meet people and go to parties. And I was like, where did these parties happen? <laughs> You know, where's Calder? But he said, just get out there because you never know what's going to happen. And so, in fact, I went to the director's company, which is a company that Hal, I heard referenced earlier. And they had this thing called the Hal Prince Musical Theater Workshop. And I applied to that and didn't get it. Uh, but I did, but they liked me. And they said, we have this other thing called Adapting for the Stage. And I had this sort of little play I was writing, which was an adaptation, and they let me do the first act. Uh, and some people came to see it, and a woman who, uh, you know, this writer who I knew from growing up, frankly, because I knew her daughter came, but she recommended me to Doug Cohen, other name Doug Cohen, who wrote a show called Noah to Treat a Lady. And Doug is amazing uh, in that he'll just go, if, if he hears about you or sees something, he'll just go to you and say, gee, I think you're great no matter how old you are, no matter how much experience you have. And he sent me a couple of shows, one of which was Knowing a Treat Lady. And then all of a sudden, the New York Theater decided to do it where you know, Susan also you know, worked. And, and 
they said, yes, I could do it, which was kind of unbelievable. I still can't believe they actually said I could do that, <laughs> considering that I really hadn't done anything except direct a couple of workshops that I put on myself, but they didn't, uh, because Doug liked me. And also Signature Theater in Washington, D.C. simultaneously picked it up. And I did these two, I did the production there, and they, they you know, I was very pleased with them, and people seemed to like them. Uh, and then I went out of town, I went to places like Wichita, and uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, two wonderful regional theaters. But, you know, like those jobs, the, the job at Virginia Stage Company that I did came from the lighting designer from Noah to Treat a Lady told the artistic director because she was lighting another show, oh, you need a director for this show, this guy would be good. Completely random. You know, who would think that a lighting designer would get a director a job? And I did actually end up using her as a lighting designer. <laughs> sort of this payback. Um, and, and so I guess that's what I think it really comes down to. And then what happened, uh, just tracing through the dots, because it's, it's interesting to me at least, uh, I went, uh, I did a show at Pasadena Playhouse, uh, which was a new musical which didn't go beyond there. The show itself, while it was a great experience, um, you know, wasn't, wasn't a, uh, you know, it wasn't able to go, go on from there for a number of reasons. But I met an actress named Caitlin Hopkins, who was in that show. And she said, oh, you know, I did this little thing at, at a 44-seat theater last year called Bat. And it happened to have won some grant called the Richard Rogers Grant of New York. You should really meet the, the writers. I think you'd like them. And lo and behold, because I happened to work with an actress who, indeed, I kept on the show then. Uh, <laughs> there's a trend, I guess. Uh, I, I got introduced to the Bat Boy people. One of the producers of Bat Boy was one of the producers of Tick, Tick, Boom, and so on and so forth. It really becomes what, what becomes apparent, and it's both scary, but kind of heartening in an odd way, is it really is kind of about who you know. And people say, oh, you know, you should try this person out, or I saw something this person did, and they were good. And uh, A lot of the time, you know, particularly on for me, it was because they couldn't get you know, better and more established people, so they would finally come to be probably tenth out of people they would go to. But eventually you sort of work your way up, I suppose, and, and maybe they now come to you third or something. <laughs> but, but the point is, it's, it's about sort of being out there and meeting people, and, you know, and it doesn't always come from the people you think it's going to come from. You know, I guess I, I always thought there were certain people that I would meet and I would say, well, that's the person, you know, who's going to tell somebody to hire me. It was never that person, uh, to be totally honest. Uh, or vice versa, or you'd work on a little show. Um, like I worked with this cabaret composer, John Kino, many of you may have heard of on a little show called Urban Myths, which I did in Wichita. Um, and then Hal Prince happened to see, have, have known one of the pieces from that show called Lavender and Hal called John and said, gee, I'm doing this thing called Three. Uh, would you like to do it? And John said, yes. And he said, well, you know, do you have any ideas for directors? And he said, well, Scott happens to have been working on it and I liked him. And, you know, there, there you have it. And that's how I got to meet Hal. You just don't know. But what's heartening about it, I think, and, you know, is that it can be anything. And just, just being out there, sort of, if you hang in there long enough, even through those sort of 
long, frustrating times where you're not making any money and where you feel like, I'm never going to work again. And I'm sure we've all had those times. Uh, just eventually, they get shorter. <laughs> and, and, you know, you meet people. And, and more and more opportunities arise. I mean, so I guess that's, that's my little story in a nutshell. Good. Larry? My turn. Uh, okay. How did a kid from Rolla, Missouri, in the middle of the Midwest, the hometown dance teacher, end up here? Um, when I was growing up many years ago, uh, there, we didn't have television yet. So I was raised on the end of the MGM musicals. Um, I fell in love with musicals that way. And ever since I was old enough to remember anybody asking me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always said, a dancer. And I used to dance around the living room for quarters. <laughs> and um, studied dance and so on and so on. And ended up uh, at the same this meeting opera, summer musicals at 16 in the dancing chorus, which to me at that time was like having my life's fantasy dream come true. And that was after my junior year in high school. I did it again after my senior year in high school. And then I went to a year of college, like Jeff, because my, I was not yet of age. And my father insisted that I go and uh, study something that I could fall back on. Um, and so I said, okay, I'll go, but I probably won't like it. When I'm of age, I'll do what the hell I want to. So I went for a year, and then I went back to uh, the Muni and did a season, my third season there. And by that time, I had met uh, and kind of be befriended uh, a good many people, but a few really fairly good friends that were already in New York. And I had uh, some amount of money. Uh, and I was of age, and I said, okay, goodbye, I'm going to New York. Um, and I came to New York at 18. And um, my first show was West Side Story. And I couldn't believe that I got in there, but I did, because I had done 30 musicals at St. Louis Music over three summers. With a lot of very, you know, a new show every week in those days. You rehearsed a show while you played a show. And, um, and it was a grueling, grueling schedule, and you had to be very young to get through it, because there were 11 shows a season. Um, and then I left West Side and went into the Music Man, so, um, and stayed in the Music Man for quite a while so I could study dance, uh, excuse me, uh, singing, more singing, and acting, which Sandy Meisner's class find out how actors worked. Not that I ever thought I'd be a great actor, I just wanted to know how the technique worked. Um, and really, at that time, I had no uh, driving ambition to be a choreographer or a director. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to that break as a performer. But, and I did a lot of television while there was still musical television in New York, um, and saw it all go bye-bye. Uh, I was actually on the last Gary Moore show, the last Ed Sullivan show, and the last Perry Cromwell show. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And um, so I realized at that time that uh, nobody was looking for Gene Kelly anymore. And even if they were, there were probably 400 other guys more qualified in line ahead of me. Um, and so when Carol Haney, rest your lovely soul, um, whom I'd worked for a couple of times on television and in a, a, a musical that nobody's ever heard of called Bravo Giovanni, um, called me to do Funny Girl. And I said, gee, I'd love to, Carol, but um, could I be your assistant? I don't want to just be a dancer in the show. And she said, well, I have an assistant already, but you can, but who's not going to be in the show. But you could be in the show, you could be my second assistant and the dance captain. And so that's what I did. And unfortunately, Carol died very shortly after the show opened. Uh, she was a diabetic and she didn't take very good care of herself. And so she had passed away at a very early age. Um, extremely, extremely talented woman and a great human being. But um, because of that, Jerry Robbins had taken over from Garson Kane during the out-of-town run, and Jerry didn't really care that much about seeing, looking after the show after it had opened, so Larry Kasha, who was his assistant, kind of took over that position, and when it came time to do the National Company and the London Company, he was directing it, and he asked me to recreate Carol's work and to do some new stuff. Not much, but a little. And so I did, and um, I found that I was pretty good at it, and I really enjoyed it. And I had never, as I said, intended to be a choreographer or a director. Uh, and then I did the first summer stock tour of it, which I directed as well, with great big success with the Ford and Gross. And I found out that I liked doing that, and I remember the first time I had a senior meeting with, oh God, I can't remember, Fred Vogel? He's a designer, I think. Um, and he came in, and this was going to be in the round, and I had only done the Broadway proscenium version. And, you know, as great as I was about the whole thing, I said, okay, Fred, <laughs> what are you, you going to give me for the scenery? And he said, well, what, what do you want? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh. <laughs> so he said, well, make a long story short, uh, I'll go away. When you figure out what you want, call me. Well, of course, I was totally humiliated, and I couldn't sleep for the whole night and the next day. And in about 24 hours, I figured it all out, and I called him and back, and I said, I know what I want now, Fred. So he came back and I told him exactly what I wanted. And it was the first lesson for me about what a director does besides the directing the <laughs> <laughs> And um, um, he did a great job on it. It was a big success, as I said. And that led to a few other shows through before and gross. And I became kind of a fair-haired boy of theirs because most of what I did was quite successful. And then um, they had a new musical, which was to star Martha Ray about a character named Texas Guinan, who was a real uh, cabaret star in New York in the 20s, called Hello Sucker. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
which was a saying that Texas guided us to, to call her customers. Um, and so they gave it to me. Well, the script was like a telephone book. It, it was four and a half hours of dialogue, not including musical <laughs> There was another lesson as, what does the director do with you know, an, an untenable amount of material and dealing with the writers and, 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 and them? And the star, who wasn't easy. So that was a, a big summer of, of hair pulling and fingernail biting and learning hard lessons. And uh, I had a couple of numbers in the show that were extremely well received, but the book didn't work, and it didn't come in. But it taught me a lot. And then I got a couple of Broadway shows, which nobody would remember because they didn't run more than <laughs> a week. Um, as a choreographer, and by this time we were into the early 70s, and um, Broadway was hitting its first kind of recession period, so the clock is ticking, I'm going to jump. <laughs> Don't have two people. Um, anyway, I ended up going to Europe to do, um, to stage West Side Story in a couple of opera houses, and I found out while I was there that they were at that time, I was in Germany, in Nuremberg, Indiana, that they were desperately hungry for somebody that knew how to do musicals, because they were starting to do them quite a bit in these large opera houses, um, with big, full Broadway-sized sets and so on and so on in repertory. And um, so I stayed as long as I could work, and one thing led to another, and I was evolving a rather good career, and Hal Prince came over. While I was working at uh, the Teatro Antivine, I was doing a dance evening with their group of dancers that were signed to the theater. And he was uh, doing a retread on um, their production of <coughs> They were about to open their production of A Little Night Music, which... Um, it's a movie. No, no, this was the stage version before the um, and they were uh, doing it in German with the same George Martin was right? With the same set, the same costumes, everything the same, only in German. And I was doing this dance evening with the dancers because they weren't in it. So Hal said, "Can I watch rehearsals?" And I thought, "Why not? I haven't got anything to lose." In New York, I couldn't get my foot in his door, but it didn't really make any difference. So. He came and he watched and he seemed to like what he saw. And then he also saw a production of Girl Crazy that I did at another theater in Germany. Um, and then he hired me to assist Pat on the movie of A Little Night Music. And she was only there for three weeks because she had a contract to yeah. Greece. I had to go home for well, uh, when I started shooting. Because they had postponed the shooting date for so long. Right, so yeah. And so I assisted her for three weeks while we were rehearsing with Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Chow. And, uh, <laughs> 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 and she left, and I stayed on and helped Hal put her work on film. Um, and that developed a work relationship. And about a year later, he called me and asked me to do a show called On the 20th Century. And, you know, like being where and when and 
just how, who in the world would have thought that I would run into working with conference in Vienna? And so then, after the 20th century, asked me to do a Vita and Sweeney Todd and Merrily uh, Girl and um, another lesser known show, A Doll's Life. Um, and I did some stuff in London on my own, directed a couple of big musicals there, and my time is more than running out. So I will get to just one last comment. When young people ask me today, should I go into the theater as a career? People tell me how talented I am, how wonderfully successful I might be, and so on and so on. I always say, well, do you have a choice? If you have a choice, don't do it. Do it as your hobby. Do community theater, so on and so on. Do something else and make a living. But if you have a passion that is so compulsive you can't resist, then why are you asking me? You'll do it no matter what anyone says. And who knows, maybe you will be successful, maybe you won't. But that's the only answer for people who want to know if they should take a chance and they can try for a career in the theater, I think. So if the passion takes you, you have to follow it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, I'm going to start in the here and now, I think. Um, just because I'd like to share that um, I've, I've been so lucky to have some people recently in the last maybe five years write to me from different parts of the country. I guess they, you know, uh, write to the theater and then it gets passed on or to an agent. And um, it's just so wonderful because I never would have had the courage to do that. And when I was younger, I didn't know that you could do that. I didn't know that people enjoyed hearing from other people. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just about coming to New York. Sometimes they're writing thesis, um, and you know they're interviewing several choreographers or directors. And I've been, you know, fortunate enough to be able to put them in touch with certain people they couldn't reach. And so um, I think there's a, a huge accessibility uh, for most artists. I mean, most most people are very very accessible in terms of helping other people. Um, I know I was so helped and so blessed by by that connection, and so I'm just putting it out there because um, I've had some fruitful threads um, being able to help other people connect. And I know it's, it is random, the word random has been used repeatedly here. I, I feel juggernaut would be a more um, apt word for my career, um, but uh, I, I guess I, I started by choreographing West Side Story in my basement. Um, when I was a kid, I came from a huge family, so there wasn't too much money, but um, I did a really good job when I saw that one. But <laughs> uh, my next big break was uh, my, my school did Brigadoon, and I uh, did a huge dance part for myself, doubled the dance break, and uh, you know, just my, my early choreographic impulse was so that I could dance, that I could do things. That, that I really felt, you know, wonderful doing. And um, I came to New York <clears throat> to go to school in American Ballet. And um, I remember the first day standing behind Colleen Neary, who was the sort of star of the Clash, later became the big ballet star. And I, I realized I could see myself on either side of her. And this is not good. <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> I, I, 
I weaned myself out of the, the dream, because my only dream really was to be a ballerina, really. I, I didn't, I love musical theater, but I didn't think that I would ever have a career in musical theater. And um, so it was a, it's a bit of a, a, a long story, but I, I then became the only white member of the Alameda Company, for whom I'm now doing work. I just started this week. It's kind of a wonderful circle that's come back to me. And um, Alex saw something in me, and, and you know, I was quite young and not trained in modern dance, but I got up on it really quickly because, um, you know, we just went off to Africa. And that was a phenomenal early experience, and I think it was, you know, Alvin's connection with human story, I mean, just overwhelmed me, and being able to be in those works of revelations <coughs> and being sweet, um, and I began to realize that it really was sort of more of an after dancer, and studying with Ruta Hagen and studying with some other great, great um, teachers. And then I think again, just to give myself the kind of dancing I wanted to do, because I had been in shows, I was in Michael Bennett's shows, um, I formed a company with several other people, and as Susan says, I think it's just initiative, and it's so hard, especially now, but um, formed a little group called Theater Dance Collection, and um, we were performing thanks to Joe Papp again, the you know, person who's helped so many of us, while we were dancing in that series and a man came up and said, you know, here's my card. And we all laughed because we just thought, oh, that is so corny. You know, it's probably a sleazeball, but it wasn't. It was a, a guy who had a company in Lisbon, a Lebanon company. And, um, you know, he said, call me. So I finally called him because someone told me who he was. And I, I uh, he said, well, I'd like you to do work for, for my company. But I didn't really feel like I was a choreographer. I felt like I was just doing these dances so that I could in them. <laughs> and so I, I said, well, are you sure you mean the one in the gray? And then we, we, we worked it out, and um, all the way over on the plane, I just, I had a little feeling that they would find out I wasn't really, that was just a fake. And it was just a revelation to be um, entrusted with those people in the room every day. And, and of course, I was a choreographer. I always had been. I just didn't know it. And, uh, Finally, just got the pleasure again of sitting in the audience and realizing, well, this is where, this is me, this is who I am. Um, then I, I had the privilege of working with um, Trevor Nunn and, and Lapine um, to you know, both such fun of my mind. However, this is my karma on Broadway. I sit down with Trevor Nunn and he said, well, you know, we're, I'm going to do chess, but you know, we really don't want it to look like that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll try. And then the same, of course, you know, James' sensibility is very spare. And I remember once he said to me, I, I love what you've done because you take out some of the steps. <laughs> and so I tried. It was a, a strange thing. But I, I, I think it was just tuning in to, to different ways people work and, um, and understanding what is needed. And, and that collaboration, and I know it's going to be hotly discussed this weekend, trying to see, you know, if somebody could just put their mind against the wall like a movie projector, then you'd say, I get what you mean, but it's very difficult, even just after discussion, after discussion, to sort of meet your sensibilities halfway. Um, but I think gradually, like, I have to say, I, I think I learned to direct by working with multiple directors, and um, my father was a writer, so eventually it came together, but dance is mainly a, a nonverbal form. So I think it takes sometimes a while to find boys and find your intellect and find how to put the gift together. 
um, and, and make the transference into um, you know text and speech and uh, the the joy of it is unbelievable. And then you know being able to stage quite effortlessly is, is nice coming from a dance background. Um, and I'll just close by saying that I, I, I had a really remarkable journey on swing because it was at once a show that had no book, nothing existed. It was just a concept that existed. So we wrote the show as we went with um, just kind of trial and error workshops. And, and just to say that those producers, the Frank organization was so incredibly supportive. And I think you know anybody else would have given up on me a hundred times because sometimes I would work for two weeks and have like five minutes to show them. But um, we need more people like that that can you know, allow each artist their own process and not say, this process should have been done in you know, 16 days or eight days or 10 days. And um, so that has been truly a highlight. Great. Um, I came to directing uh, mainly through performing uh, and I had a similar experience with Susan in terms of getting bitten early on, which I won't uh, connect all these dots, but uh, when I was a kid growing up in Vermont in very cold winters, I was fascinated when I was cast as a, one of three kids, my brother and sister were the other two, who we were neighbors of the director, I think, and we got cast in a show called Mr. Flanagan's Ocean. We had to run across the stage in, uh, and ask if we could swim in his ocean. And the rest of the show I spent looking through the window of the flat that he was, was his house at the, at the actors performing a play and just absolutely uh, becoming sort of enthralled um, with the illusion that we were all creating together. And um, I, as soon as I got out of high school, came to New York to study acting. And uh, immediately after that, started working with a mime theater, Richard Morse Mime Theater, uh, and uh, toured around the world, and, and continued to work as an actor, and uh, was was uh, lucky enough to um, work in musical theater and in straight plays and Shakespeare, and with many of uh, some of the people on this panel, Pat, uh, Lynn, and Charlie, and, uh, as an actor, and learned from them and from many other wonderful directors and choreographers about how, what's involved in putting a show together. I was fortunate enough to get cast in a number of new musicals at every level of development and uh, um, learned just by observation. Um, and I was always an actor who uh, probably had too, too many ideas. <laughs> I hope I was never too obnoxious. <laughs> but, um, uh, remember feeling, gosh, I wish I could suggest something about that person's performance, or I wish I could, oh, this would be cool if it wasn't such a realistic set, or, and just, I just uh, amuse myself and then frankly keep myself uh, uh, invigorated by, uh, by thoughts I had as I was watching the process, and, and I absolutely loved the process of tech rehearsals as well. I was one of those rare actors who actually look forward to them. When I was out of town, I remember with a show called Rags, uh, in fact, they were trying to buy our day off for a thousand dollars. And I was the only one who voted, I'll come in and do it. It's fun. I just love it. Everyone else is like, no! But learned tremendous amount from those experiences. And um, worked a number of times at a place called the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddon, Connecticut, where they 
do revivals, but also where Charlie, of course, worked and uh, many others, um, uh, but also do uh, many, many new shows. And uh, I had worked there four or five times and read a clause in my contract uh, that said uh, actors uh, uh, need to be made available on Mondays and Tuesdays, your normal day off, in case you want to do a reading of a new play. I'd worked there for six or seven years and had never been asked, and I'd never even read that clause, in fact, and I was just sort of assigned to thing, and I asked uh, Warren Pincus, the casting director at Grisby, while we were on the bus on the way up there, what is this about these readings? I've never seen anyone do a reading at Grisby, you know, during the, and they may well have done many, but I never had been involved, and um, I said, hey, if I get a play or something I want to do, can I, will you let me do it there and use a couple of the actors in the show? And, and uh, uh, he said, sure, I bet, I bet they would, and uh, I had done a number of shows at the Chester Theater in Goodspeed, where which run three and a half weeks. And this was the first show I'd been cast in up at Goodspeed, which on the main stage which runs for three months, uh, plus the month of rehearsal. And I was like, hmm, what am I going to do with my time after uh, the shows? So I uh, got together with a gentleman named Andrew Lippa, who was the uh, assistant musical director for the show I was performing in, uh, and. Um, he, I said, I'd love to do a reading of something, and he said, oh, I've got a great little show called John and Jen. It was a two-character, sung through musical, one-act musical that lasted about half an hour. And um, I said, hey, why don't we do a little reading of it? And Andrew himself played the role of John, and Kay McClellan, who was playing uh, the female lead in, in the, the show, which was a, it's a bird playing in Superman, which I was playing the villain, uh, played Jen, and we would rehearse from 11 at night to 1 or 2 in the morning for a period of a few weeks, and then performed the show in sort of a reading format, but with off-book and with music and, and so on learned, of course, and um, we invited the cast of the other shows there and, and the producers of the theater, and, uh, and it was a big success, and from that, ideas uh, generated about creating a second act wrote it in about three months and did it a reading of it at the director's company, actually, um, that winter, and w were awarded a, a full production of the show um, at the Good Speed the next summer, and that was really the first show I, for full production, I actually directed, and it ended up coming into New York and, and has been, been uh, done in many other theaters around the country, and uh, uh, Andrew went on to write a, a, a show called The Wild Party, which was done at Theater Club last year, which I was able to direct, and and uh, I've now been working uh, steadily directing and once in a while performing too. But, um, but and absolutely uh, love it. And um, if I had one thing to 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 say from my experience, it's uh, don't wait, initiate. Just take 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 things into your own hands, as everyone has been saying, and know. Scott said, uh, you can never know. You're probably sitting next to someone who will offer you a job someday. And and uh, you've seen this happen. I've worked in a theater where the janitor ends up being behind the casting table the next year. <laughs> <laughs> it really happens. So be nice to everybody. <laughs> and, and seek out opportunities aggressively. Joe? Yes, sir. Do we have some time to ask uh, some questions, or where are we? Can we open the questions up? 
Who's saying yes? A few minutes? Well, she has to be the first one. Yeah. This was great. Okay, we're, we're, we're turning our time slides now. We can't really see.
including all of you, as director, looking at new work, new musical, what excites you the most about a new piece of work? Good writing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for me it's a, a, a hearing a voice. I, I can't explain what that means. Somebody has a, a take on something that I haven't thought of or turned around a viewpoint or, or just, you know, I, I think it's just the freshness of, of material. And I'd rather take a chance to work on something like that for a year than to do a revival. What speaks to you first, the music or the book? It's tough because they're integrated. You know, it's, it's got to be about something. So if it's about something that, you know, speaks to me, then if the music's good, then, you know, you just fall in love. Yeah, I, I have to say, though, and a lot of people say you should really listen to the score as you're reading the book and, and maybe other people. But I usually do listen to the CD or the tape first. And it's not that I care about the quality of the, the recording. I actually really don't care about the quality. It could be just a piano and the vocal rough and scratchy. But kind of for a musical, if music doesn't book, it's tough for me, to be totally honest. Now that's just not to say, uh, you know, I've got things that sound like to last that I love and things that sound like, you know, cycle. It's not that it has to be a particular style of music. But I do think that that's important. I, I don't know I if others too. agree. I do, I, I listen to the music first. And, um, but what I'm listening to is the storytelling. It's not just the notes. I mean, of course, it's important, but it's also, is it theater music? Is there a story that's being told by a book, by emotion, kind of theatrical What I do is I read like the first page, and if that grabs me, then I listen to the CD. Like, if I, I like to have a musical that was about like someone trying to take over a department Getting bitter and angry isn't going to help. <laughs> 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 I 
I would disagree. I mean, I, in my in my case, I I was James Lapine's assistant. I had no credits. I in, I got I did a play at the New Theater Workshop, and I invited a bunch of agents, and I got a, a, a wonderful early career uh, agent, this woman named Helen Merrill. Kind of, it was kind of a legend in, in her mind, and actually in her time. <laughs> and she uh, she was a great early producer. She made a bunch of phone calls, and you know people could barely understand her because she had a picture of an accent and a speech impediment. But she really cared, and she got me a meeting with uh, Lynn Austin, who ran the music theater uh, group, and said, "Well," and, and Lynn said, "You know, I I respect Helen Merrill. She thinks you're great. What do you want to do?" And I told her about 15 musical theater projects I thought would be interesting. And she called me the next day and she said, I don't want any of your ideas, but I'd like you to do, I'd like you to work with David Dottredici, uh, this classical music composer, and I'd like you guys to write something. And that's how I got my first job. So I think it does vary. Yeah, it does. I couldn't get in the door. No one would pay attention to me. And I was nobody. And again, how many agents have that kind of class? Not even on one hand. So unless you can land one of those, Actors always blame their agents for not getting them a job. Well, if someone doesn't want to hire you, it doesn't matter who your agent is. I think that helps Jobs 
um, that maybe would ordinarily take and stay with them longer than you should, perhaps, because they actually finance your ability to work on yeah. those shows. On that optimistic note, <laughs> almost all of these panelists are going to be uh, speaking and, and being on other panels in the next two days. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.